Hello, Lions of Liberty fans. And you know, one great way to start out your day is with a shot of whiskey. But if you're not an alcoholic, the next best way to start your day is with an amazing cup of coffee. And now you can order coffee, delicious coffee, and also support the Lions of Liberty. We have partnered with Anarcho Coffee to create our own brand of coffee known as the Morning Roar. And let me tell you, this coffee is delicious. I am saying that as someone who just drank two cups of it before I recorded this pre-roll. So I can tell you, I'm a little hyped up, and I just had some delicious coffee. And I'd like you to be able to start your day the same way. So I want you to head over to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You get a 10% discount with your very first order. And if you join the Lions of Liberty Pride for $10 or more per month, which you can do over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, you will then get a permanent 15% discount on all future orders. And you're going to want future orders after you try this, let me tell you. But first, give it a shot. Head over to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee and start your day with a morning roar. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. What's up, my Liberty lovers, Liberty haters, Liberty player haters? I don't know. If Liberty is anywhere in your title, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. Even if it's not, I'm just glad you're listening because this is the show where every single Monday I talk about the ideas of Liberty with several guests like you're going to hear today. A great guest from Reason Magazine who I've been looking forward to talk to for a while. But it's not just me here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. Every single Monday hosting the flagship show, I have friends, I have compatriots, and they host shows on this very same feed as well, starting with Brian McWilliams every single Monday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty and mispronunciations on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odermatt wraps things up every Friday with his incredibly inspirational look at stories of injustice and triumph over injustice on Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, whether you listen on iTunes, whether you listen on Stitcher, whether you're one of these people that likes to listen to podcasts on YouTube, I don't know why you people do. I don't know who you are, but I do know you're out there. So no matter how you find the show, hit subscribe so you don't miss all the fun each and every week, three days a week for free. And if that's not enough for you, be sure to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, where we just unload tons of bonus content for our amazing patrons for as little as $5 a month. You can help us support the show. Help send us to Porkfest, where we're looking to create a mini documentary of our time there. As long as you guys fund it, that shall occur. One more note, this is the 397th episode of this program. Accordingly, you can find today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 397. <laughs> My guest today is an editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. He is also a frequent commentator in the mainstream media, having appeared on the full spectrum of radio and television outlets such as NPR, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, etc., etc., and he has now finally arrived at the big time here on Lions of Liberty. Very pleased to welcome Mr. Nick Gillespie. Nick, are you ready to roar? I am uh, ready, willing, and able. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Pleasure to have you here, Nick. And uh, since it's your first time on the show, why don't we start at the very beginning? What is the beginning of your political journey? How did you first become interested in politics overall, and more specifically, the ideas of liberty? I would say a couple things. And the, and the main thing is my I have an older brother who I'm 55. My brother's uh, four years older than me. He went to college, found Reason Magazine in the college bookstore. This was back in the early 80s, I guess, and started sending it home to me. 
Uh, around the same time, I started reading. Uh, my parents had an old copy of Free to Choose laying around the house, and I stumbled across that uh, and by Milton and Rose Friedman, uh, and I started reading that. And then after, I, I basically started considering myself a libertarian because I believed in things like uh, – uh, you know, free trade, uh, an end to the drug war, uh, an end to war in general, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it just made a lot of sense to me. And then later when I graduated from college, I was working as a, a journalist uh, for a couple of uh, papers in central New Jersey and whatnot. And uh, I ended up, because you, know, you get the crummy jobs when you, when you start there, and I ended up uh, being assigned to a lot of zoning and planning board meetings. And that really kind of triggered something in me in a lot of ways. Sounds that, exciting. Yeah, well, you know, it's like it was that I was like going between high school graduations and zoning board meetings. Right. But yeah, I just remember these vignettes constantly of, you know, petty bureaucrats telling people to redo stuff because it didn't quite fit the, you know, the exacting zoning rules or whatever. A lot of times that property owners didn't even really seem to understand. And it, you know, that just, it kind of got under my skin. I'm also, I've always been interested in kind of um, art, uh, music, culture, uh, uh, creative expression. And I was always a free speech maximalist. Um, and I think that started again in the eighties after I, I was working as a journalist for a, a period of time in New York. Um, and then I went to grad school, and this was in the late 1980s, uh, really as uh, what became known as political correctness was gathering a lot of steam. And faced with, uh, I was going to school for literary studies and uh, faced with a recognition that I was not a leftist uh, at all, and I was not a conservative, I really started to kind of flesh out what it would mean to be a libertarian and to take it more seriously. And I'd say between 1988, when I started at Temple University in Philadelphia, and 93, when I got hired by Reason, I uh, was working on my PhD at uh, SUNY Buffalo in, uh, in Buffalo, New York. I had really become full, like I, I had a full ideology because I felt like I needed one in order to understand the world around me. So that's kind of the uh, summary thing. And then in 93, by the way, I was still subscribing to Reason. They were advertising for a uh, an assistant editor, and I was growing tired with the idea of writing for academic audiences, and I realized that my uh, cut of politics and bent on a lot of things were not going to make that easy sledding. So I applied for the job at Reason, and I got hired in October of 93, and I've been here ever since in various capacities. That's pretty cool that you know one of your earliest influences happened to be Reason Magazine, and you eventually found yourself actually you know working there and eventually becoming an editor as you are now. I mean, to be honest, like you know, if if I could have done that with any magazine I really loved, I would be working at Mad Magazine right now. But, <laughs> I know, used to love Mad life, Magazine. Life well, yeah. doesn't work out the way you plan. Right, right, right. You might you may need need better you know cartooning skills, I suppose. Yes, or humor, or, some, or maybe better writing skills. I don't know, but uh, you know, Mad and uh, one of the things that I, I uh, you know, just kind of uh, jabber on a little bit about jabber this away. Too. It's, um, it's what we do I, here. Um, I grew up, uh, so I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, my parents were the children of immigrants. They were um, not educated themselves, but they had a real healthy skepticism towards everybody in power, uh, mostly because they kind of, you know, they were scared of people in power, but they also knew they were being hosed by them all the time. And I think New Jersey has a certain element of that where, you know, you know, you're getting kind of screwed over by everybody <laughs> around you. And in turn, you might be doing that to other people. But it creates a cynicism, which can become unhealthy, of course. Uh, but it's also 
I think it predisposes people to uh, take power seriously and think about um, how, do, how do you limit power and how do you put more power in the hands of each individual, which I, so I think that was kind of, I, I grew up in Middletown, New Jersey, which uh, went, during the 70s especially, there were clam and oyster beds in the area that, because it's right where the ocean starts in New Jersey, about 50 miles south of New York, and they, the, the water, the, all of the uh, clam beds were polluted so you couldn't eat anything out of out of out of the uh, the water the bays and stuff like that but it was um it's kind of a metaphor for uh, growing up in new jersey you know which is where milton friedman is from uh originally was born in newark i think and uh, but it's 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 like a bad healthy climate for skepticism towards power and an interest in letting people be be able to make more choices in their life which i think in many many ways is kind of the defining characteristic of a libertarian sensibility what do you think kind of influenced the other more because you kind of went into things you went into journalism and it sounds like you kind of had yep. some libertarian influences already uh did did your efforts in journalism sort of solidify your ideas more or do you think it was more that your ideas have influenced your approach to journalism yeah you know that's a it's a great question and one of the things that i know uh i mean with the certainly when you're at a a zoning board meeting or something and some guy and i remember this story somewhat uh, where a guy had put up a small fence it wasn't even like a privacy fence or something on the perimeter of his property he didn't realize this was in a town in the middle of new jersey and he didn't realize that he had had to have a permit for that and it turned out also not only did he not have a permit but he only put it 12 inches back from the curb rather than 16 or 18 or something like that and so the horror the, the the board members didn't simply say, you know, you screwed up and just do it again. Like they each took turns kind of, ex you know, excoriating the guy for like, who do you think you are that you can just do whatever you want without checking in with us? And it was really like something out of a, you know, of a nightmare um, because it's like bad enough to be controlled, but then also like to be, you know, to have to listen and suffer through and eat shit because, you know, these people have power over you. So I think, you know, that, that definitely kind of pushed me in a certain direction. A lot of the things that, that I was always interested in, uh, I, I worked in New York as a music journalist and a, uh, I worked for a movie magazine and, uh, uh, you know, a teen magazine and stuff. And I was always interested in the, the kind of falseness be between the image and the reality of something. And you get that a lot in entertainment. And, you know, again, this is the mid to late 80s. And, um, you know, so I was always interested in that. And then actually in grad, school uh it you know i i always became i this was the heyday and i know we're going to talk about this but it was the 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 high watermark of kind of post-structural or post-modern theory deconstruction and i became very interested in the you know what what is the actual meaning of something what is the hidden meaning what how much do we really know about anything and oddly um you know this type of stuff often gets associated with the uh with the left but uh for me it was completely simpatico with a kind of libertarian understanding of like what are the real what 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 is really driving people's behavior their actions their rhetoric and uh around you know sometime during my high school or i guess in my college years i was a english major and a psych major but i stumbled across thomas saws uh the great anti uh critic of medicalization of society and of psychiatry itself wrote a book called the myth of mental illness but like one of one of his main insights is that people will often use a, a the rhetoric of helping you or of medicalizing a problem or of telling you they're doing it for your own good and that that as often as not as a tell that they're actually trying to control you they're not trying to heal you they're not trying to help you etc and that kind of distance uh, that the you know, my, my literary studies as much as my journalism kind of led me into thinking about that and taking that very seriously. 
Hey friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Free Man Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. Well, since you brought it up, why don't we just dive a little bit more into into postmodern mm-hmm. modernism? So, when did you first come across this theory? You know, in, in your sort of intellectual journey. Oh, boy, that's a good question. Because uh, yeah, you know what, I've never really thought about that. But I mean, I think you know, in in a serious way, it was really uh, when I went to grad school, um, and the late '80s was kind of the high high water mark of a kind of postmodern aesthetic in, in American novels, which is what I was most interested in and was studying. Uh, and, and the postmodern there means something different and it means more, um, there's a lot of irony. There's uh, a fixation on unfinished, uh, unfinished surfaces, uh, disrupting regular narrative so that, uh, the whole idea of a, of a postmodern book would be, it's one that would, um, you're going along and it seems like a normal story. And then the, the author or the creator does something to stop you short and make you realize that you're reading a fiction that you're, you're not actually experiencing the world. You're experiencing an attempt to explain the world. Uh, and that kind of, critical stutter step of, you know, constantly saying, we're looking at something, we're exploring something, but we're also, we want you to check the lenses that you're looking at again and again. Uh, to me, that's part of the main um, idea behind uh, postmodernism. And then uh, there was in, in 1980, I mean, this is obviously well before I was interested in this stuff, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, who is a French philosopher, social theorist, wrote a book at the behest of the Quebecois government, of all places, uh, which was called the uh, postmodern uh, condition. Uh, and uh, in that, he called postmodernism as incredulity toward meta narrative. And what I take that to mean is that uh, what is uh, important about postmodernism is that, or or a postmodern mindset. And I'll, I'll get maybe in a, in a bit. I'll explain. Like I, I have stopped using things that are often used as nouns, as nouns, like a, like a libertarian. I, I, I never say I am a libertarian right. anymore. I say I'm libertarian, and I'll explain why I think that's somewhat significant. But, but the postmodern mentality is really one that focuses on the limits of knowledge rather than the extent of knowledge. And I have found over time that that's very uh, consonant and consistent with libertarian ideas about not, not so much about knowledge, but about politics and policy that we – uh, and this is coming straight out of Friedrich Hayek, uh, who Michel Foucault, who is one of the you know uh, 
you know, the, probably the uh, premier person identified with a kind of postmodern sensibility, uh, who was a, a skeptic of power, uh, who was a correspondent with Thomas Saws. They wrote similar books at a similar time in the 60s about medicalization and medical helper rhetoric. Hayek, uh, at one point uh, towards the end of his life in the, in the early 80s or uh, mid-80s, Foucault told his students in Paris to read Hayek and Mises with special care. Um, and I think that was because um, one of the things that Hayek certainly Mises in a, a little bit different way, but they really stress, you know, the limits of our knowledge. And hence, if we don't know that much about the world, we should really, really take seriously the idea that we should not be telling other people how to do everything. Um, and to me, that that's kind of the intersection of libertarian ideas and postmodern ideas. And the way you describe postmodernism, it's it's really hard for me not to say like that. That sounds like it lines up perfectly in line uh, with yep. libertarian ideas in so many ways, uh, especially the idea of sort of just rejecting meta narratives. That's that's how how all of us have gotten to where we are. We have rejected right. the meta narrative uh, that we've been presented in life, uh, politically or, or culturally or what have you, and have, have found another path. And, and you know what? Let's yeah, I agree. And uh, but let's also focus. It's I, I think it's not simply a rejection of saying like, well, we can't know anything or all. things theories are, are the same because they're all incomplete or anything. But that phrase incredulity or that word, which means, you know, not that you don't use them and that they're not helpful tools, but that you, you don't you, you don't make the mistake of thinking that they're always and uh, everywhere correct. Like you have to go back and check your math constantly again and again and realize that a lot of the times the theory you're using to explain something is flawed and it keeps you from recognizing that you're using a theory as opposed to actually engaging the world. And I suppose just outwardly rejecting a narrative is sort of a narrative in itself. So even that would sort of be a little bit against postmodernism. Yeah. Uh, or with it, I mean, it's, you know, this is the, you know, the arguments now, particularly, I think, on the broadly construed right, and to a certain degree on the left, uh, but, you know, but people like Jordan Peterson is, is probably the uh, highest profile example, where he'll talk about postmodern Marxists. We're doing this, that, and the other thing. And that's always been confusing to me because uh, post when I was in graduate school, for instance, and when you look at uh, some major works of both Marxist and postmodern uh, theory, they recognize that postmodernism and Marxism are separate from each other. And actually, in most ways, they're uh, diametrically opposed. So there's a book from the, I guess, the late 80s, or early 90s called Postmodernism or the Logic of Late Capitalism by Frederick Jameson, uh, who's at Duke. And um, the whole thing there was was that what he Marxists see postmodernism, uh, which they see as kind of surfacy and glib and fun and kind of um, banal uh, in in the way that it's applied to things, like it, it decontextualizes and dehistoricizes things. It makes it very difficult to figure out what is the real story of something. They see that as an excrescence, as as something that comes out of capitalism, because what capitalism does first and foremost is it makes people mistake the current moment for the way things have to be, and it dehistoricizes and decontextualizes things, whereas Marxists are uh, you know, they believe in an enlightenment science of progress. They believe in a truth with a kind of capital T. And they believe that, you know, the way forward is by teaching us now, because we all are deluded with, uh, you know, uh, with a, a false class consciousness, or we don't have class consciousness, but that we uh, accept things as they are because we assume that that's natural, normal, and it's the way it's always will be. And what we have to do is go back and rediscover history to understand the means by which 
today's world came to be built. And from a Marxist perspective, that's you know about alienation and exploitation of the worker. Where uh, postmodernists are kind of interested in in reveling in the uh, the limits of knowledge, Marxists insist that there is one true narrative that actually defines things, and that you find it uh, that capitalism tries to hide that narrative because it's a system based on a systematic oppression and alienation of people and and keeping them down. And so that the Marxists will, uh, you know, they'll say the the solution to the current moment is to go back and under, understand history better uh, through the lens of class relations. And um, so when when kind of right wingers now or a lot of libertarians to be uh, to be sure start lumping postmodernists and Marxists together, I think they're making a, a real category error. And and more importantly. From a libertarian perspective, I think you know one of the reasons why libertarian ideas have done so well is because particularly Hayek's um, emphasis on the limits of knowledge and the kind of epistemological humility that goes along with that and the implications for overarching regulation, it's, it's very postmodern. When you say libertarian ideas have done so well, I think a lot of people listening might say, really? <laughs> have well, they? Yeah. I mean, they have with well, us, but, yeah, but yeah. have they in the society at large? It's, it's kind of hard to say. Well, you know, but this, I think very few people, certainly in terms of kind of policies and things like that, but, you know, think think about the state of the individual. And you're, you're catching me. I, I must have had a nap or something. I'm feeling refreshed, even though it's Monday. Uh, and, uh, you know, like the, the work weeks are, are bitter and brutal because, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's not a great time to be a libertarian, I think, by any stretch. But in, in the bigger picture, when you look at nobody, nobody or very few people believe that the government actually is, is capable of controlling whole industries and doing it well. Some people might want that because they want to take stuff from one group and give it to the other and things like that. But we've, you know, the, the essential kind of free market libertarian perspectives about regulation, whether we're talking about something like uh, interstate trucking or airline deregulation like that broad argument has won i think people recognize that uh it is better when you leave people more choices in their lives to decide what is important and how to how to live their lives personally how to how to make their businesses and things like that we sometimes are jaded because you know the minimum wage keeps going up or you know this regulation gets layered on top of that regulation etc but in many ways the united states is a much more libertarian country than it was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago and i think it's also true in in many parts of uh in many parts of europe and other parts of the world so i your point is well taken but i think there's another way of talking about when you say more libertarian than 30 or 40 years ago are you speaking more in sort of a cultural sense or do you think our our laws are actually just more libertarian than they were in our legal system well yeah, it's all of those things and above. And I do think that as Matt Welch and I wrote in the book that we wrote together, or published in 2011, 2012, the Declaration of Independence, that politics are a lagging indicator of culture. I think culture gets there first, and then it shows up down down the stream a while uh, for politi- in politics. But yeah, uh, both cultural and economic. And so when you look at something like uh, you know things like gay marriage, things like uh, pot legalization, uh, these are not small things that have happened. Um, you know, going back earlier, the the ending of the draft and whatnot, which Milton Friedman was instrumental in actually uh, kind of making the argument for that in a, in a government commission in the early 70s. Um, it's a lot harder for the government to 
say, you know, just issue edicts and expect people to follow them. That doesn't mean they have stopped issuing them or that we're not following them, but we're having discussions, uh, you know, about things like criminal justice reform, about getting rid of cash bail requirements, which will help, you know, any number of poor people who get trapped into the the criminal justice system. Uh, We are, um, education is undergoing a kind of much slower than it should be, but still a fairly systemic uh, reboot towards a system that empowers individual parents and kids to have more choice within the context of a public school system that had always been very much command and control. These are all, you know, these these are things are happening, even as, again, you know, for me, one of the biggest fears is that the government is just, um, you know, uh, taking on so much debt that there's going to come a reckoning that we can't deal with. And, you know, there's going to be a real, if we thought 2008, was a problem. There's going to be a real problem uh, sometime in the near future. So, I mean, there are many things to be worried about. There's no question that the size, scope, and spending of government continues to grow. But there's also, uh, you know, a fair amount of freedom, uh, I think, that is, is growing at the same time. And that's a paradox that we should appreciate uh, a little bit more than we do, I think. Sure. And I suppose just the fact that so many of these things that you mentioned, whether it's criminal justice reform or what have you, are even mm-hmm. in the conversation, they're, they're points of debate. Yeah. And the fact that they even are kind of shows where we are, in a sense. Think about it like, yeah, occupational licensing reform is a, is a great one, you know, in the 50s. And I'm, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it was something, I don't know, you know, it was something like, you know, one in 10 or one in 15 occupations, you needed some kind of license to practice. And now it's, you know, triple that or whatever. And, you know, but it's being peeled back, is what, which is my point, is that we're actually talking about getting rid of occupational licensing. And the governor of Arizona, I think, just signed a law that would basically allow, you know, like if you if you learned how to cut hair, if you got licensed in... You know, in in New Mexico, you can use that same license in Arizona. You don't have to go through the whole thing again. I mean, so again, these are you know, this is not exactly uh, uh, you know pulling down the walls of uh, you know uh, of Rome or something like that. But there's a lot more stuff going on now, and I think in many ways, one of the battles that we're facing as libertarians. Many of our ideas have been accepted and normalized, and now the next set of things that we need to be doing, um, you know, are much harder. And that has to do with things like, um, you know, fiscal fiscal policy and monetary policy and things like that that are much more complicated. We're also seeing, I think, um, after a couple of decades of positive belief in kind of technology and the internet in particular as a kind of dispersed, decentralized, uh, empowering network of, of ways of running businesses. There's a big pushback against that, some of which is is warranted. Um, but I, I do worry, uh, particularly when we think about stuff like the internet and uh, kind of social media and, and a lot of tech, uh, that we're, there's a, a moment now where the the people who are running these companies, whether it's Apple or whether it's Facebook or Google, want regulation. And I mean, they have explicitly said in congressional settings, we want regulation now. And it's because they're starting to you know, lose market share, their, their revenues are flattening. Sure. When the most successful businesses in an area are demanding they themselves be regulated, you got to look yeah. at it and be a little bit suspicious. I agree. No. And this is, again, this goes back to that kind of deconstruction. You know, it's like, you know, oh, they're, you know, like what what's going on here? And it's it's a weird power play, right, to say, I want to be regulated. I will have to help you write the regulations because you don't understand anything about this industry. <laughs> Luckily, we have a team of experts ready, ready at your disposal. Yeah, it's problematic. And I, I also think it's related to this, too, that there's a kind of what we will look back on perhaps as a golden era and a a brief era of of free speech dating back from about 1960 until now, 
um, w- that we took for granted is actually being um, shut down in the in the name of you know protecting people's feelings, but also their privacy, and that, you know making sure that Facebook and Google and Amazon don't have too much tracking information on you, or you know or the fact now that people can speak politically anonymously. Uh, you know that well, we can't allow that. That would be you know that's chaos inducing and things like that. So um, there's a lot of real efforts to uh, reduce the scope of free speech online and elsewhere, or to um, or to subject it to certain types of regulation, which is deep deeply troubling. And for me, you know the, the, uh, these are not small things, but. But there is also positive, you know, there's positive developments over the past 30 or 40 years. Yeah, this free speech issue can can kind of bring us back to the conversation over postmodernism, because I interviewed Jordan Peterson maybe two or three years ago, and uh, he got mm-hmm. into things a little bit. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the issue for him, it seemed, was this, the free speech issue, and he would directly connect that to postmodernism slash cultural Marxism, which I don't want to use that slash, but that's mm-hmm. kind of how he uses sure. it. And, and we can kind of get into more about, mm-hmm. you know, why they're so different. You, you did a little bit earlier. Uh, but, you know, his, his thing is, you know, I guess uh, when, when he was in Canada, they were passing laws or working to pass laws. Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, stating that you must use, you know, certain uh, gender pronouns and that sort of thing. And he stood against it uh, just from a free speech aspect solely. Like he even said he's willing to call people by on an individual basis by whatever they ask. But the fact that they were trying to make it a law is what he was sort of objecting to. And he would tie that into the ideas of postmodernism saying, you know, once we accept that words don't have certain meanings, this is kind of the end result. Um, Well, I guess what would be your general criticism? criticism of that idea i guess and there's probably a difference i guess we have we can't equate laws being passed in the name of something with the something yeah well it's also but you know that i mean that's it's a fair let's put it this way whether we call it postmodernism or we call it cultural marxism or we call it uh you know will to power it doesn't really matter there is a there is a serious issue with um you know People, people gaining power, uh, you know, and sometimes it's economic power, but more, more typically it's political power, and then forcing certain kinds of limitations on speech or forcing only, cer- uh, you know, recognizing only certain types of expression. I am not cl- familiar enough with the Canadian law that they were specifically talking about in that issue about whether or not you would be, f- you know, what would happen if you didn't call a trans person by the uh, by their uh, preferred pronouns. And I've I've read. I believe the pr- proposed law actually included jail time. For not doing so. Yeah, I well, this is where I've read so many differing accounts of what the law would have been, et cetera. So I, I don't know how close it is to things. But having said that, this is and this is also where I think there's a difference between uh, kind of conservatives, uh, objectivists, so you know more Ayn Rand types, and then libertarians of the sort that I am. Or I, I want to, you know, I'll just say like with me, uh, you almost did it. Almost used it as a noun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, and, uh, it's, um, you know, I, I'm a pluralist, um, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I know what, you know, I'm, I'm searching for truth and I think we find truth, uh, you know, and we move closer to it with a small T as opposed to a big T, all of that kind of stuff. I, uh, I don't want, I don't want the government or anybody else telling me what to think or how to think or how to express myself. So, you know, I think we're all good there. The idea that, um, you know, for me, there's this larger question with the trans movement that people get flipped out about of like where, you know, we went through this paroxysm, this spasm of, of just like shouting at each other over, uh, bathroom store policies, you know, like, you know, could target 
basically let people you know use whatever bathroom they chose or whatnot there's something about that issue that touches at people because it seems that you know gender or sex is so identity is so built into us organically biologically that it's a fact of nature rather than a fact of expression or something I'm not so sure, and I don't really give a shit. Like, I'm, I, Reason has had a trans person on their uh, contrib- as a contributing editor for decades, and it's it's all good um, to me. I don't think that saying that you believe that there are multiple truths or you don't have the full answer leads to some kind of nihilism. I don't think that's true, and I also don't think it has to lead to. Um, the kind of draconian authoritarian speech policing that we're seeing on college campuses, especially, but elsewhere in society, particularly when, you know, when government gets involved. So I'm not sure that that answers the question, but it's also, um, you know, I don't, I don't see anything in, in my understanding of, uh, of kind of postmodernism and libertarianism in a way that would mean that we, uh, you know, that somebody ends up forcing you to, to speak certain words. So I want to dig in a little more into this idea. You've mentioned it a couple times coming along here is is the idea of truth. And you differentiated between the capital T truth and the small teeth truth. So what is exactly the right. difference there? Is it more that the, 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 the big T is saying this is the truth and it is what it is and he can't be challenged, whereas mm-hmm. the small T is more sort of the, the pursuit of knowledge? Yeah, I, I think so. It's, it's kind of the difference between um, – uh, 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 proclaiming that you know science has arrived uh, at the final truths that will always be true under mm-hmm. all circumstances and all conditions, versus the you know using the scientific method, which is uh, you know coming out of the idea that we basically we we have a bunch of hypotheses that we keep using, and as long as once once they're proven false, we get rid of them and we adapt and we learn a little bit more, um, and you know and that's kind of the way forward to better and more knowledge. And knowledge is good because it it can both explain things that happened in the past, but it can also predict how things will happen in the future. Um, I also think one of the problems in a lot of our conversations about things like truth and meaning is we're constantly slipping between... um, uh, we're slipping between different modes of discourse that really require different types of rules. And this is something that Friedrich Hayek talked a lot about in the counter-revolution of science. Um, but, you know, let's, if we're talking about physics, you know, that's one thing. Uh, but then if, if we're talking about, say, medical conditions or, you know, that, um, that you know, somebody wants to say, well, you know what, man, like you, you seem to be very agitated. And I think I'm going to give you a diagnosis of, uh, you know, of, uh, bipolar condition and you seem kind of violent so i'm going to use this truth that i you know i'm a scientist listen to me i'm going to use this to write laws that make you take certain types of drugs or stay in certain kinds of situations Mm -hmm. etc like when when you start moving into uh things that have to do with human relations and human uh human meaning uh it becomes you know these these truth claims are very different, and we need to be very careful with them. And I think we need to be extremely humble in those, and especially when we start to say, we're going to start treating certain people this way uh, based on what we know to be true. Because Lord knows, you know, things like psychology and sociology and economics, you know, they never get anything wrong, right? They're, it's just one unbroken succession of, you know, of complete right. triumphs <laughs> of understanding human history. And and that to me is it's it's a big difference. So it's like when people say, oh, you know, postmodernists, like you know, uh, you know, they're welcome to believe in their own laws of gravity. You know, that's like you know a good joke and everything. But that's actually not what we're talking about, is it? And when we're talking about how do you want to live a life 
in which you find your own meaning and you create your own meaning. And who gets to tell you, no, you're, you can't do that, or yes, you can do this. And for me, I mean, the reason why I'm libertarian, the reason why I'm postmodern is that I think those two things create a world where there are fewer bosses and there are more kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, free, freelance agents who are making their own communities, making their own worlds. It, it levels, you know, it levels power throughout the, throughout the system, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, and I think the way you're describing it again really does, you know, seem to jive perfectly with the ideas of libertarianism. I think where a lot of libertarians might run into trouble trying to sort of work this stuff all out is uh, truth claims when it comes to morality and when it comes to moral positions. Because I think mm-hmm. uh, myself, I, I certainly base a lot of my thoughts on some objectively, some things that I think are objectively wrong, per se, like the initiation of violence, or just to get a more specific mm-hmm. example that almost everyone in society agrees with, rape is wrong. That's something I would state, but right. in, a, in a sort of mo- postmodern sense, to state that with you know with a capital T as a capital T truth would kind of be, you know, I, I, how, how would you dive sort of moral, moral claims like that uh, with the ideas of postmodernism? Well, you know, this is the, uh, you know, the concept of if you believe in individualism, you know, and that's a big if, but Hayek, again, I'm, uh, as you can tell, I'm uh, um, probably more influenced by Hayek than any other uh, single mm-hmm. thinker in, in kind of the libertarian canon. But, um, you know, if, if he believed in what he called methodological individualism, which is that the individual is the starting point of analysis and understanding. Um, but if you believe in individualism and the idea that we have, you know, we all have equal equal standing under the law or amongst each other, something like rape is wrong because it's it's a non-consensual activity. And so you, you don't have, uh, you know, nobody has a right to force somebody to do what they want, you know, what they want to do against their will. Um, there might be extreme circumstances where if you know somebody moves you out of the way of a car when you know it's about to run you over the only way to save them is to rape them <laughs> yeah that's right exactly yeah and, you know we we can get into all of the various dorm room you know variations on all of that kind of stuff but it's it's also like right. nobody is nobody is seriously arguing i nobody that i know like you know that rape is bad and rape is wrong and there should be laws against it then we start to get once once we go from there then then we start talking very quickly about what you know, what, what constitutes rape then or whatever, or is, you know, and, and we went through phases, we've gone through phases in, you know, the past 30 years where you've had conservatives and, and liberals both arguing that certain types of cultural expression, uh, slasher movies, porn movies, et cetera, are a form of rape or a form of assault that need to be regulated and stopped. And I think that's the place where we should be thinking about, um, you know, like in, instead of arguing over, uh, you know, certain definitions of what is objectively true or not, like, let's, let's start thinking about um, these issues that are um, coming back again and again in policy terms that might leave us less able to express who we are or think what we want and say what we want. Um, and, you know, where I think there is something worth thinking about, and I, I, I have, I know that uh, Peterson and a couple of other people have either announced, I don't know if they've fully done it yet, but like leaving Patreon, the uh, uh, a platform that allows people to, you know, uh, make money right. or, or collect money while, while doing certain types of things. It's a really great, you know, idea and it simplifies things for everybody. But Patreon, you know, kicked off a bunch of people because they said, well, I don't like their expression. Uh, you know, or they didn't like what they were saying, sometimes not even on Patreon or related to Patreon. But, uh, you know, and the same thing is happening on, on uh, YouTube and uh, Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, you know, from a libertarian point of view, and I'd be curious what you think, you know, there's there's two ways to think about that, right? One is that, um, you know, these are private platforms, these are private systems, so they get to dictate who does business there 
from what what the uh, what the offerings are just as much as if they ran a restaurant and you know they don't want to serve vegans or something like that they shouldn't be made to um and that so that these businesses are it's totally fine doing what they're doing and then you should just go and start your own business if you want and that problem solved um that's a kind of standard libertarian issue answer which i think is good and we should produce more parts of society where that's possible there are places where you can't leave or you you know whatever but uh but then another part of me is also wondering if we're you know we are losing a larger um interest in kind of a society that is filled with argument and again to go back to pluralism um you know are we are we becoming so thin-skinned that we really want to like kick everybody out all of the time anybody anywhere says anything you know mildly offensive or whatnot um and I, I fear, you know, I fear that that's where we're going. And now you get to a point then once once we're in that mode and then some people get political power, they get to dictate a lot more terms because people are already kind of warmed up to the idea that there should be one standard for everybody or for everything. Um, and that to me is problematic. Right. I mean, in theory, uh, in the, by the standard libertarian yeah. view of property rights and that sort of thing, it, sh- it could be as simple as saying uh, the owners of the yep. platform should set the rules and that's simple. Uh, I think we do get into a bit of a, a difficult situation when platforms become so big and not, not just because they're big because they're doing well and because they're providing the best service, which, you know, in many ways, the market is saying that they're doing that. But as companies grow, and this is just sort of a something ingrained in our economy now, and it's they become almost mm-hmm. a part of the government at some point when they become so big and have so many advantages that at some point, and I'm not saying we're at that point or, or even that I know where that point is, at some point you have to start looking at things and say, okay, well – is this can we even call this private anymore? And I, I don't know if we're there now, but there could be a point where regulations become so difficult for other companies to exist in those social media. Like, what if Facebook became the only social media platform because of so because of the regulatory environment? At that point, I think it might possibly be fair to say, well, you can't, you don't have the same rights as, as, as a regular old mom and shop par- property owner anymore. Now you're essentially part of the government and need to sort of abide by free speech and that sort of thing. Uh, when it comes to Patreon itself, I. I for us, it's been huge. I mean, we take in a lot of revenue off of Patreon every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did lose a few people, you know, during that time, that incident. But I think when I actually break it down with a lot of people, it's not the speech issue for a lot of people. Um, it's actually, you know, when you actually dig into the argument, they claim that Patreon is actually just completely mm-hmm. ignoring its own terms of service and its own contractual st- statements in regards to what it, what it would use to actually remove people from the platform and then has gone against yeah. that when it sort of just changed its mind. So I think that's a lot of the criticism. And from a libertarian standpoint, you know, if they really are breaching a contract, I think that's perfectly valid criticism as well. No, I agree. And, and this is where, you know, in a way we're kind of in a, uh, you know, as, as annoying and as frustrating and as um, hostile as a lot of this stuff seems, we're in kind of a world of wonders, which is worth thinking about, um, that we're talking about Patreon and Twitter and Facebook and, you know, and other places and YouTube or other other streaming services. And, and 10 years ago, this conversation wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, the, the opportunities for, for expression and for gaining an audience and finding an audience and for speaking your truth and all of that kind of stuff continue to multiply. And this is where, again, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm like nobody's idea of, of an optimist or, you know, like a sun sunny side up kind of guy or anything like that but you know there is a continuing growth um you know towards you know people being able to to express themselves more fully not just in speech acts but by how they live 
etc. How they work, what kind of businesses they create, and it's always going to be that you know it's it's a it's a kind of cops and robbers game where you know Uber Uber comes out with with a service that absolutely disrupts taxi cabs, you know, which are you know just a, a terrible way of organizing ride sharing or whatever. But Uber, you know, Uber and then Lyft and you know Sidecar, I guess there for a little bit, and a couple of other companies, you know, disrupt that market. And then of course what they do, and we know this because we're good libertarians who read both public choice economics as well as social historians like Gabriel Kolko, um, you know, they, uh, you know, the minute that they get like to a certain point of market domination or market share, they call up the state legislatures or urban, you know, the city councils and say, hey, we get it. You know, we really want to work with you in order to make sure that all of, you know, the rides are all free, you know, they're, they're, the drivers are nice and the, you know, everything is going well and nobody gets hurt. Um, so we're always going to be having this kind of dance. What's, what's good about it is in many, many ways, people feel more empowered and they are more empowered through technology and through attitude really to try new things. And, uh, you see that, that for me is like the upside of stuff. And then like, you know, then there's all of the speech policing that goes on some of it by the, poli- uh, some of it by politics, but often more times, uh, by culture. And, and I guess, you know, just to kind of follow up on your point, um, of like, I, I don't think that we're anywhere near, and I don't, I know you were not saying this, but that, you know, something like Facebook is, is a public utility that right. should be regulated as such. That would be a disaster or the, or the internet. Sure. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't advocate that to be clear. <laughs> well, no. And, and actually like Nancy Pelosi, uh, just, uh, last week gave an interview to tech, um, or to, uh, recode saying, you know, section 230, which is the law that immunizes, uh, uh, website uh, website owners and ISPs from uh, immunizes them against um, you know uh, bad behavior by commenters and people who use their sites. She's saying, yeah, that's you know we're going to have to rethink that. Ted Cruz on the other side of the aisle has been saying the same thing for a while, and we're starting to see this convergence of liberals and conservatives agreeing for slightly different reasons that massive areas of the economy, particularly related to uh, the internet and technology should be regulated. And that scares, that really scares me a lot because that's when bad stuff happens. Um, And I think we always need to be fighting against that partly by recognizing that the law, you know, the, we are not really governed by laws as or simply by laws, but also by attitudes and mindsets. And I feel like American society has certainly become, um, more and more shrill and more and more willing to entertain op- uh, you know multiple points of view on things and sometimes for a long time that meant that conservatives got to run everything and you know now it means that liberal progressives get to and it's it's a bad thing and we got to we got to figure out i think libertarians because i think we are principled in this uh, we've got to figure out who are the people in the middle that actually are arguing in good faith that freedom of expression uh, is really you know individual freedom of expression is absolutely at the core of you know what the american experience is experiment is and and kind of what politics should be about um we got to find those people and start rebuilding a coalition in favor of of free speech well uh, if we can be successful in the the free speech front uh, hopefully we can make even more changes in the libertarian direction and since we've kind of that's been somewhat of a theme of this this interview today i'm wondering if you have some thoughts over maybe the number one libertarian policy change we might see in the next 10 years uh, you've touched on a few possibilities but i'm wondering if you have one in mind that you think there's a really good chance we'll see a major i guess maybe a sort of a complete sea change on in the next decade or so wow that's a good question and i wish i had been thinking about that all along um i'm all about the curveball yeah, no, that one, that would like that one, it, it like just uh, beamed me right between the eyes. Um, the one <laughs> libertarian-ish policy that would change uh, 
everything the most that that is doable or maybe maybe even just more of a, a cultural shift you know just um you know that's a it's a postmodern question yeah, <laughs> you no, can take it wherever you want well, you know <laughs> actually the the thing and well there's there's two ways of answering this one is what would i like to see and then the other what is most right. likely i suppose and um i think that um on a certain level, that the thing that has been bedeviling me is like I, I feel we're very much, uh, you know, we're almost twenty years into the twenty first century, but we're still fundamentally talking about everything through twentieth century lenses and using twentieth century organizations and institutions. You know, whether we're talking about like the UN or NATO or, or de- the Democratic and Repu- uh, Democratic and Republican parties, we're you know we're we're trapped where we know like the the twentieth century is over and it's not coming back and things like Social Security or Medicare or old age entitlements don't make any sense whatsoever anymore. We can't support them. They're, they're unnecessary um, in, in a fundamental way, but we don't know how to shift out of that into whatever will be sustainable uh, going forward. Um, and I, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very excited to see the beginning of the end of the drug war is because, uh, you know, first off, I think the drug war um, and is one of it's, you know, like the Cold War, where it's, it's not simply a set of policies about something specific, but it's marbled throughout every aspect of our lives growing up. And when you get rid of that, like suddenly all sorts of things will seem obvious that we haven't even seen before. And, you know, when you think of how, you know, the war on pot basically meant, you know, kids in school had to listen to dare cops, our foreign policy was screwed up, uh, we were policing neighborhoods in fucked up ways, we had, you know, we built prisons for nonviolent offenders and things like that. Um, I also like to think that we are starting in this a roundabout way. Cause I'm, I'm buying time here. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, but the the shift back to uh, kind of individual interest in individual consciousness that actually I think the beginning of the end of the drug war will bring us. Uh, the, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a technological determinist. I think that technology is really the main driver of shifts in, in human society uh, and, and in general has always been very liberating. Uh, you know, the internet allowed me for 20 years really to work part-time from uh, small towns in Texas and Ohio, uh, you know, for reason and, uh, you know, and then go to the cities when I needed to and things like that. Um, but um, it, it, with drugs, like, uh, we are shifting from the idea of, you know, that there are legal and illegal drugs, and that's good, bad. And I think we're going to start recovering a sense of people using um, uh, different substances, dif- different practices, and these can be, you know, exercise, uh, nutrition, meditation, as well as new drugs that are constantly being invented, both by pharmaceutical companies as well as by kind of garage tinkerers and whatnot, to really kind of individualize and personalize our states of mind and what that makes us capable of doing. I know this sounds, you know, kind of uh, un, uh, unreconstructedly kind of hippie age of Aquarius stuff, but I think that's starting to happen. And I think we're starting to see a melting away of kind of uh, a lot of uh, overarching uh, feelings of repression that are based on things like religion and family and uh, national identity. Um, and that we're, so I guess here, I'll, I'll make news for you. I think right at, even as we are now talking constantly about identity politics and, and arguing and shouting at each other in terms of group groupthink and all of that kind of stuff. I think what we're going to see over the next 10 years is really a flowering of true individualism where um, people start to take themselves more and more seriously at the individual level and recognizing that the, the large group identities that we talk about are, and this brings it back to postmodernism, are partial explanations of who we are and we need to stack them all up on top of each other and figure out who we are individually 
And then how do we best connect with people around us? So it's kind of like if 23andMe, uh, I don't know if you've used that service. The, you know, I have, actually, of, yes. Yeah, I, I discovered I was uh, very, very white and European. Yeah, that, <laughs> I know it was a big surprise <laughs> to you, I'm sure. I kind of already yeah. knew, but yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, as that gets better, you're going to start to find uh, weird kind of individual quirks in, in, in your actual DNA, much less than your, all of the experiences that you've had that interact with your genetics and all of this kind of stuff. And I think we're going to enter an age of, of true individualism. And it, it will be a better place because we won't be we won't be locked into these tribal battles that are just, you know, not only uninteresting, but they're unfair and they lead to all sorts of abuses of power. Boy, that is such a positive note that I almost just want to end <laughs> on it right there. But, but I do have one more question yeah. I wanted to ask you. And this is actually, uh, it might be another curveball, but this is the, the same question I actually asked your colleague, Matt Welch, mm-hmm. a couple months ago. I- I'm just curious, what would you see yourself doing in the realm of libertarian activism if you were not a journalist, if you did not work at Reason, if you were not, uh, you know, doing the kind of activism in a sense that you're doing right now, what could you see yourself doing in terms of, you know, political activism? That's a, a great question. And I, I think I probably would have been doing something on uh, the, the issues that probably uh, uh, attract me the most are immigration and kind of mobility of people, uh, you know, the, the ability of people to move where they want, not, not to be given anything other than, you know, a little bit of space to be left alone on. Um, I could see myself uh, working towards that or something having to do with drug policy, because again, I think that consciousness, you know, if, if you don't have, if you don't have, you know, if you don't have the right to literally or figuratively change your mind, it's like everything else kind of is, is second tier. Um, and I had always been, uh, even at various points, I've used a lot of drugs, other times I haven't at all. And, um, but it's always seemed to me to be, you know, just so, so fundamental to kind of human flourishing, um, you know, something about drug policy. The other thing, and the, you know, the smart thing and, uh, would have been to start a business that actually does something really great uh, for a lot of people and, and not only throws off jobs, but also makes people's lives better. I'm thinking of people like uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, who's, you know, kind of, he's right around, you know, he, he could become a Bond villain, you know, within, uh, within a couple of weeks or something. Right. <laughs> he's right on that edge of hero or villain. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, and this is something that, um, I know from having, because I lived in, uh, again, mostly in, in small towns and telecommuted uh, for much of my career at Reason. I'm back in New York now. But, um, you know, when, when Amazon started shipping books and then everything else from the mid-90s on, like when you were living in small towns, um, it closed the gap between, and it, it didn't make the small towns any, you know, it didn't make them like big cities or anything, but it gave you access and it just improved the quality of life so tremendously. He's... You know, it's it's not an accident that he's the world's richest man, or or he was until he announced his divorce settlement. And you know, Bernie <laughs> Sanders recently was talking about you know billionaire. He doesn't like billionaires because billionaires don't you know they don't earn anything. They just take money from people. He's so full of shit about that, and he kind of had to eat it a little bit when it was revealed that he was a millionaire because he sold a book that a lot of people wanted to buy. That's, you know, what business guys do. And like, you know, I mean, this is... And he basically just said, yeah, I wrote a best-selling book. You could be a millionaire too. I was like, oh, well then what's the, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Suck it. Right. And it's like, yeah, well, you know what, like what, yeah, when you can, when you can sell like, you know, billions of books or, or create like streaming videos that people are dying to watch, like, yeah, maybe you're going to make a lot, a lot of money, you know, because you're making a lot, a lot. Yeah, of but his logic, if he sold 100 times his book and became a millionaire, then a billionaire, yeah. I mean, then 
suddenly it would be bad? Is it just the amount? It's it's confusing. Yeah, no, and it, and it's it's it's. Um, but you know, uh, it it used to be uh, when Bill Gates first retired, a lot of people were saying, and I think it's still true that no matter what he does, you know, because he said, okay, I'm giving all my money away to you know charitable causes, and I'm going to stop this and that and all this. And everybody's like, no, you know what, like his, he's already like his great contribution to humanity was really creating a, a series of programs that were cheap enough and ubiquitous enough that they actually enabled the, the personal computer revolution. And, um, you know, and that's true with a lot of things. And, and so in that sense, I mean, I think that the greatest libertarian activists in a lot of ways are, are always kind of entrepreneurs who create new ways of doing stuff that are just better, faster, cheaper, and allow for more other things to happen. Um, so in that sense, that would be the, uh, you know, that would, that would be my dream. I am the worst businessman in the world. So I, you know, I, I had, I'd like, there's a reason why I'm not a political activist or an entrepreneur. So, and it's not cause I'm good at that. All right, well, Negwa, we're so glad you're out there doing what you're doing and making the contributions that you are over at Reason and now here on Lions of Liberty. So it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Of course, before I let you sign off, feel free to plug away on anything you like, whether it's uh, how people can connect with you on social media, find your work at Reason, or if you have anything exciting in the works, feel free to plug away. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm on uh, Twitter mostly at uh, Nick Gillespie, all one word. And all of my stuff is at Reason.com. We just redesigned the website for the first time, and it's got to be like a decade it's it's much better looking and, and more importantly it's better functioning so uh go to reason.com all of our stuff our videos our our web articles our print articles everything ends up there are podcasts we have three times a week a great podcast so uh go to reason.com please well nick it's been a pleasure keep searching for that small t truth keep up the great work <laughs> and keep on roaring thank you very much <laughs> All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nick Gillespie, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. There are many ways you can deliver those thoughts. Uh, you can tweet at us, of course, at Lions of Liberty, or directly at me, at Mark D. Clare. That is Mark with a C, M-A-R-C, the letter D, C-L-A-I-R, Mark D. Clare. Or you can come on over to Facebook and join the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just search Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar. Come on in. That is our public group. You just have to answer a very simple question about how you first found out about this podcast. And of course, to get the real nitty-gritty behind-the-scenes stuff, you're going to want to be in our secret Facebook group, and that is for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters who support us on Patreon. Some of them send us money through PayPal as well, but you can find out more about that over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, and we are currently setting a goal of $1,500 for our next level. We're about eh, 12 something or so now. And if we can hit 1500 a month, we're going to be able to afford to create a mini documentary of our experience at Porkfest, which we're going to be attending this June. I'll also be hosting a podcaster's panel at Porkfest. So uh, please do check out Porkfest, porkfest.com. Check out how to get your tickets. I highly recommend the VIP tickets and highly recommend uh, joining us in the VIP tent for a lot of booze and a lot of fun. So please do check out Porkfest.com. Stay tuned to this podcast for updates about the stuff we will be doing at Porkfest. And check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to all of our great bonus content and help us produce this documentary. And lastly, of course, as I mentioned at the very, very tippity top of the show, we have an amazing new coffee brand. It is called The More. Morning Roar Coffee. What better way to start your day than with a fine cup of Joe and 
helping out your favorite libertarian podcast, you get to do both by drinking the delicious Morning Roar coffee. Please do check that out over at lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. This is our partnership with Anarcho Coffee, but you need to use that link over at lionsofliberty.com slash coffee, A, to get a 10% discount off your first order, and B, so that we get a little kickback and uh, we both profit off the whole situation. You get great coffee and you help this podcast. Everybody wins here. My friends, do not forget to keep tuning into this podcast feed. On Wednesday, Brian McWilliams will, of course, bring you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And John will wrap things up, as he always does, with his incredible look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. And until next time, live long and live free.